You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. I'm glad to be your friend again. Well, that's the thing, man. Somebody got on me on Twitter. I just didn't say, you know, I don't always say your friend and mine. I, I want people who download the podcast every week to have some clue that they're not listening to last week's show, you know, or uh, I have to give them some proof of life, I guess. <laughs> right. Like we're standing here holding a copy of today's newspaper. Right. I just appreciate that our listeners are paying enough attention that something like that uh, and not to mention the countless Sir Nigel conspiracy theories that we comb through every time we do Master Tweet Theater. Something like that becomes a topic of, of conversation. And then you are forced to defend yourself, which just pleases me immensely. Yeah, last week someone on Twitter brought up the fact that I said that I have to get up and concede my chair to Sir Nigel Longstock as being evidence that I am Sir Nigel Longstock and that I play him as a as a character on the show, which, again... Another conspiracy theory that just doesn't make any sense unless you're talking about psychologically. I have to concede my chair to Sir Nigel Longstock. I'm, I'm interested in uh, that person's ideas about where that Malaysian uh, airliner might be. <laughs> it could I feel be like they, they have some some really interesting thoughts. Don't we all? Uh, well, just, Ben, we're living in a new era this week in the in the uh, mixed martial arts world. Uh, no longer is a polite custom suit clad french canadian man the ufc welterweight champion now we've got uh uh i assume tobacco chewing ball cap wearing beard having good old boy from oklahoma no man it's a whole new world you know what i mean guess we better get to it three rounds as usual for the co-main event podcast this week in round number one johnny Hendricks is your new undisputed welterweight champion and my god what a fight what a fight know what i mean and in round two okay cool so what happens now and in round number three dan henderson and shogun hua this weekend gently tuck the trt era into its grave all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but right now like we always do about this time let's do some listener mail listener mail the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from kent carter and he writes so johnny hendrix is the new king of the hill and will be making that anderson silva money soon enough however I'm reminded that he's with Team Takedown, a business venture started by Ted and Doug Earhart. They provided Hendricks a house, a car, health benefits, and covered all of his training expenses in exchange for 50%, and this part is in all caps, of all of his earnings. How hard is Hendricks kicking himself now, and how much longer is it until we see the camp go through an ugly split with his managers? Oh, the champ. I'm sorry. We see the champ go through an ugly split with his managers. Uh, first of all, is this true? Did you verify this, that, that they it's 50% of all his earnings? No, and I was hoping that you would come with that knowledge. <laughs> uh, but I know that we, we both understand the... Uh, the uh, uh, idea behind Team Takedown, right? Right. And, and this and is the exact scenario that Team Takedown is hoping to to arrive at, right? Like, is that, hey, we'll fund you through the startup phase, uh, and the the big payoff for us will be because we think that you're going to be great someday and going to be a champion. So now that's this is the point that they're hoping to get to, and now they're here. Uh, it reminds me, though, it was a similar thing. Uh, Joe Frazier had a similar setup, right? Uh, where after the Olympics, where it was, you know, a group of, of businessmen, a group of, uh, local interested businessmen, uh, basically formed a, a collective thing to, to kind of fund him because we see potential. We think he's going to be good someday. And then that's when we're going to start making our money back. So, I mean, it's one thing for us to look at it now and be like, oh man, well, here, here this is trouble a brewing, but this was exactly what they were kind of hoping would happen. And you have to imagine, like, if Johnny Hendricks had any forethought at all, he figured, okay, someday I'll be champ and they will still be getting 50% of my earnings. I found a 2009 article from MMA Weekly that says, uh, in exchange 
fighters give 50% of their earnings to the company. So as a, I guess as a, a generality, that's true. I don't know if that's the specific deal that Johnny Hendricks has. I saw Ben Askren uh, jumped on the Twitter, you know, as he is apt to do, as he loves to do. I enjoy it when he does uh, To that. talk about Team Takedown and said that they had approached him back in 2007, I think he said, but he declined to join because he felt like he would be betting against himself, that uh, it only made sense to join Team Takedown and to, to like enter into that kind of financial arrangement if you didn't think that you were going to make it big and, and make a ton of money, which I guess sort of a valid point and kind of a, a classically American wrestler way to uh, look at it. Um, but but also, uh, and I want to talk more about the, the skills that Johnny Hendricks showed against Robbie Lawler when we get into round number one, but like he, he his uh, transition from collegiate wrestler to uh, fully realized mixed martial artist seems pretty... Uh, impressive to me at this stage and who's to say that even would have been possible uh if he was also you know working another job at bass pro shop as or if he just hadn't had the same uh introduction that he had thanks to the team takedown thing where they i mean one of the team takedown promises that they kind of made early on with those guys was not only will we you know set you up with place to live and health insurance and fund you and all that stuff to get you off the ground but we'll also help you get in with a camp that we think will be good for you. And that's how that famous story about him being sent out to train at Extreme Coutures and getting knocked out by Phil Baroni his first day there and then deciding, oh, hey, if that's, the, if that's as bad as it gets, man, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm going I'm to be all right. You know what I mean? It takes a certain type. Yeah. It definitely takes a certain well, type. And so, you know, you can play like kind of what if with all that stuff about, you know, and also just that, especially in this business, uh, who your manager is and who they know and how they can help you out can can definitely play a role. And maybe we could even look at uh, where Ben Askren is right now and where Johnny Hendricks is uh, and look at it, whether we think there's a huge gap between their skills. If not, then maybe it's some of the decisions they made along the way that explain why one guy is the UFC champion and the other guy is, you know, fighting in Singapore. Right. And I think that's a valid point. Uh, also, though, I think to Kent Carter's final, final point, now that Johnny Hendricks is the champion and we assume making championship level money, uh, you, you do wonder how long that financial arrangement makes sense to him, especially if it's 50% of his earnings. Although I think that you referenced a good point that a lot of the you know, a lot of who your manager is and who you train with in, in this sport has a lot to do with who you trust, kind of. Right. And like, n- not only uh, whether or not your manager has solid connections, which I guess is important and probably, you know, the number one thing you have to have to be a manager, uh, but like, you want to be working with people that, that you trust to have your back. And uh, I don't think I'm, you know, breaking any news on the podcast to say that in the fight game, uh, the guy who becomes a fight manager is not always that guy. Yeah, the, there's I mean, there are some good managers and there are some bad managers out there. Typically, it's not a line of work that people go into because they think, where can a honest, upstanding businessman like myself make the, the biggest impact? I know I'll become a fighter manager. No, it's not always the way it happens. This guy's so, looking for an honest wage for an honest day's work. <laughs> you might have some unsavory characters. I don't know if you've ever talked to Ted Earhart, though. You talk to that guy and you right away get the sense, yep, this is Johnny Hendricks's kind of dude. Nope, this I'm, is the I'm kind not. of dude that Johnny Hendricks would like to hang out with. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I'm sure that that plays a role. Oh, I'm sure that goes a long way. Especially, you know, if, if you like a guy and feel like you have a good working relationship and you trust him, maybe that supersedes all this other stuff about the finances and whatnot and maybe if you feel like you're it's, it's getting to the point where you're getting a raw deal i'm sure that that guy would rather renegotiate it with you than lose you altogether. so hey just just a thought johnny uh second question this week comes to us from doug ty he writes hector lombard just came to my house and threw me a whole bunch of times there were also some power punches were you as high on him as i was or as low on him as joe rogan was at ufc 171 now we talked about this when we watched the show together at your house uh uh, that you know for as good of a color commentator as joe rogan is for the mixed martial arts world uh he does do this thing it seems like a lot at specific events where he gets really fixated on one idea and then right. like continues to bring that up throughout the entire show and this past weekend at ufc 171 one of the things that he seemed to be a little bit fixated on was guys with big muscles gassing out right and, and that's a valid point because that is a thing that happens but he's decided i, th- I think that it happens happens like when he like he sees you getting off the bus as you would say chad and then decides okay that guy's gonna get tired when it's not necessarily that like 
prescriptive. Like some guys are, are big dudes who gas out and some guys aren't. And I think Tyron Woodley made a good point where, you know, he seemed like he was kind of annoyed at, at Joe Rogan talking about that. And he is one of those guys where you look at his physique and, you know, if you're following the Joe Rogan program of like big muscles equals tired, uh, he's going to be one of those guys who gasses out. And he, I think, made a valid point that, hey, look, man, I train really goddamn hard to make sure that I don't gas out. And, you know, especially with your physique, as we've seen in MMA, I mean, a lot of that stuff is just genetics. Like a, a lot of it is, you know, some guys can work out just as hard and do all the same stuff and they're just not going to look the same when they, they, they pop their shirts off. And that's just how it is. It doesn't necessarily tell you as much as you might think about how that guy's going to fight. So, I mean, it might apply to some guys. I mean, I, I do think you can make that argument about Hector. I mean, I don't know if it's the big muscles. Uh, he, he can't feed all those big muscles or what, but he does seem to slow down later in fights. But I think that's more of a Hector Lombard thing than that is a dudes with big muscles thing. Yeah, you know, he did slow down against Jake Shields this weekend, but also I felt like the criticism of him was a little bit uh, over the top, uh, not necessarily from, from Joe Rogan or just from Joe Rogan, but like across the board, I saw a lot of kind of bad reviews of Hector Lombard's performance when I just I didn't think that that you know it was that terrible I thought the guy looked goddamn terrifying for the almost the entire 15 minutes I thought he looked terrifying for the the first round I mean that one you're just like holy shit somebody get in there and save Jake Shields there's that moment when he's laying there on his back already kind of bleeding early on looking up at Hector like he just wants to look over at the ref and be like could you come here a minute like hey can we talk about this man (laughs) yeah I mean you're you're kind of it's like you feel terror on his behalf there because Lombard is just ragdolling him in there tossing him around hitting him you know but then i think what the the criticism i think stems from the fact that in the second and third he he kind of seemed like he had established that he could do anything he wanted to jake shields and then decided he didn't like that was enough right he didn't really want to try and go after it more he was he was content to cruise that's kind of how i read it in in you know rather than him like quote unquote gassing out and uh Hector Longard goes hard, man. It'll be hard to do that and not get tired for 15 minutes. Yeah. Tossing guys ass over tea kettle like that. <laughs> well, then, you know, you either got to finish him in the first round or like pace yourself. I mean, I think that's the thing is, well, I think a lot of people looked at that and thought, well, this looks like a fight that Hector Lombard can finish. And he didn't finish it in the first round and figured, well, I got a little bit of a lead. You know, I'll get some takedowns. I'll make sure I win the second round and then we can kind of take her easy. And you look at the stats. Uh, I was just looking at the stats. He lands uh, 18 of 33 significant strikes uh, in the first round, 38 of 54 total strikes. Uh, and then in round two, four of 13 significant strikes. Uh, you know, attempts fewer than he landed uh, in the first round and then five of 10 in round three. I mean, he just, his pace just slowed way down and he seemed like, okay, like he had decided I'm just going to win this one. And decide. he didn't really do much to try and finish in those second and third rounds, which to me, I mean, hey, you got the win. I know that that's the important thing. But in this situation, especially with what happened in the later in the, the Condit-Woodley fight, and you just don't know how the welterweight division is going to look after that night, wouldn't you go in there thinking like, all right, I do something awesome, boom, I could be fighting for a title next. I mean, that's my lottery ticket is going in there and doing something awesome. And then you're in that position where you, you seem primed to do something awesome and then are just like, or I can just kind of take my foot off the gas and, and win this one. Uh, without taking too many risks. I mean, it seemed like such a great opportunity, just kind of wasted. Yeah, I guess. He did do awesome stuff, though. He did. I mean, he did. That's if, the thing. If he hadn't done so many awesome stuff, we wouldn't be so disappointed by what happened after. I mean, I know that you brought facts, okay? You got <laughs> facts and stats over there, so I'm not going to try to argue with you. But, man, if you're going to turn a guy damn near upside down with a foot sweep in the first round... I'm going to give you basically a blank check. Do whatever you want for the next 15 minutes. And it's not like Jake Shields is some chump. I think the dude's only been finished twice before in his career. Uh, so, uh, or maybe three times. Uh, but it's like, you know, Jake Shields is a dude that, that is kind of notorious for hanging around and a guy who I think, as they said at the post fight press conference, is kind of notorious for making other guys look bad when they fight him. Both so, true. Yes. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't think. I, in my opinion, I don't think Hector Lombard did any damage to his uh, to his reputation. You're just in love with his big muscles. He does look good getting off the bus. <laughs> and if it's big muscles that make you tired, man, why do I feel so tired all the time? That doesn't <laughs> seem fair. Uh, third question this week comes to us from Alex Weber, 
or Weber with one B, who knows. He writes, so the UFC does it again through all of our pessimistic complaining about the overall product of the UFC becoming worse and worse. Do we need to take a step back and realize that sometimes we just complain to be the ones bringing something down? Do we ever owe them an apology after an event like this? I know it seemed to be a good card on paper, but it seems that no matter where you look, you see MMA fans talking about how bad it is or how bad it will be. Uh, we were treated to a, a, a great full day of fights. I, for one, was pleased. I'm hoping this will help others begin to feel the same. Do you guys ever get too jaded about the sport? Uh, I didn't see anyone saying this was going to be a bad card previous to it. No, did you? I think we were saying that it was going to be a pretty good card, or at least it looked like a good well, card. Well, I know that's what we said, but it, but the, uh, Alex Weber says that... Uh, uh, Weber? Well, Weber with one B, I guess. Let's not get hung up on that. Uh, Here's where the something stuck out to me when when you're reading this question is where he says that we were treated to like this great night of fights. It's not really treating if you pay fifty five dollars for it. You know, like that's I think my point is like yes, it was an awesome night of fights. I mean, it ought to be an awesome night of fights for like these premium prices that the UFC charges frequently several times throughout a year to where you're paying seven or eight hundred bucks if you're watching all these on pay-per-view every year um so like yeah no they, they, it should be awesome like and this was awesome this was one of the fight cards where i thought okay i came away from this one going that was worth 55 dollars to to sit around and get to watch that night of fights that was that was great that was good stuff i'm glad i saw it um and i don't think it's that the UFC deserves like a special pat on the back for doing that. I think that's what you're supposed to be doing. And sure, you can, you know, make the best fights you can. And sometimes they just don't pan out. That's not the UFC's fault. What the UFC's, what is the UFC's fault? I think is that sometimes when, because they have so many events and they, they, the roster gets so stretched out that they put on these pay-per-views where, okay, there's a pretty good main event and then we'll just get some guys to do the main card. Then you're one or two injuries away from the whole thing, you know, going to shit. And I think that that's one of the things that, like, it's not that people are are looking at this one and saying, like, hooray, finally one worth our money. I think cards like this one make you look back at the last two and think, so wait, these are all supposed to be equal in value? Because it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, and the, the UFC is still the best purveyor of MMA in the world, and like they, it clearly has the ability and the potential to put on awesome fight cards. And UFC 171 was an awesome fight card, and I think only underscores what happens when you put together a fight card that has the best guys on it fighting the other best guys right. in intriguing matchups, and then they turn out to be good fights, which I think is sort of all you can do as as a company or or a matchmaker, and and that's awesome, and I and I love it when that happens. Although, um, I don't think anyone owes them a, an apology for uh, raising concerns about a lot of the things that are happening to the product at large, because I think that there are uh, reasons to be concerned about it. I mean, all you have to do is kind of look at the schedule where you have UFC 171, where, where which is awesome, and, and Johnny Hendricks wins the welterweight title from Robbie Lawler, but then you go three events right in a row that are, uh, you know, Fight Night 39, which has Dan Henderson and Shogun Hua on it and almost nothing else. And Live from Natal, Brazil. And, and then you got uh, Minotaro versus Roy Nelson in Abu, Abu Dhabi. Uh, and then you got the Ultimate Fighter Nations finale. And then you got the Straight UFC. Straight from Quebec City, son. You got the UFC on Fox 11 card, which has Fabricio Verdum and Travis Brown in the main event. And frankly, from top to bottom, looks like an, an awesome card that, that hardcore fans are going to like. And I think looks sweeter than shit yeah that one uh, does look good uh but it is, at the same time doesn't seem like one that is going to pull a huge number on fox uh and you, you got to go through all of those then to get to ufc 172 uh john jones versus glover Tashira. so i don't know i mean i think to the extent that a criticism can be made about the overall all product i would i would say i think some a lot of the stuff that gets said is pretty valid uh i would also object to the to the idea of pessimistic complaining like I think that when we, especially on this show, when we raise negative issues about the uh, about the product, at least like when I do it, I'm trying to raise these issues because like I want it to be better. Like yes. I want the thing that I love to be great. Right. And, like I don't see that as complaining. I think I see that as like I like this thing a lot. I like it enough to point out the things that it does that I think are wrong. Right. And I, I hope, want it to be great. Yeah. And I want it to still be around in five years. I mean, I want like I. That's my great fear is that the UFC in trying to squeeze every penny that it can and trying to expand like it's the 
you know, Roman Empire on steroids, uh, going all these different places, trying to find all these different ways to get more of the fans' money that you'll just squeeze the interest gradually right out of it, um, and then it'll, it'll look like a fad that kind of died out. I mean, I really don't want that to happen, and I think that is the thing, that when we're pointing out these problems or, or potential pitfalls, we're hoping that we'll point it out so that the UFC, which has typically been pretty responsive to stuff like that, We'll, we'll see the, those, those warning signs and see that danger and avoid it. Uh, and I don't think that it's, I mean, I, I do think that there are times that, yeah, that you can get too jaded about any sport or right. any, anything and, that you're into at all. To be fair, there is a lot of pessimistic complaining that goes on in the, in the industry. I just don't think that like this is the topic to, to bring up about that. I feel like it's more, uh, uh, jaded complaining when there's an undercard fight that, looks like it should be 29-28, but one judge has it 30-27, and then you get a bunch of dudes that jump on Twitter and be like, 30-27 in this fight is ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like, man, come on. They, like, they got it right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. uh, let's do one more. Royan Leaf writes the podcast, according to MMAfighting.com, Ronda Rousey says she'd be open to a catchweight bout, but only if it's against Gina Carano. I'm dumbfounded by the notion that this matchup is even close to reality, and disappointed at the way Rousey has just undermined Mind the argument against going up in weight for Cyborg. Please discuss. Uh, I don't know that we've had a good chance to talk about this fight, potential fight on the podcast, have we? I think maybe only in an are you fucking kidding me context. Right, because I feel like it, it is worthy of some discussion uh, because I think that it's kind of uh, an interesting fight and an interesting idea, but uh, all of the ways that it is interesting have nothing to do with uh, competitiveness. Right? right. Because we're all pretty sure that Ronda Rousey would come out and, and mop the floor with a 57 year old Gina Carano <laughs> who hasn't been training or like hasn't fought for five years. And I think as you brought up during your are you fucking kidding me uh, is not the kind of person that would give us any reason to believe that she's been in the gym training super hard to get better at her no. craft as a mixed martial artist during her retirement. No, she's probably doing, you know, the the Hollywood workouts that you look good, look like like you're you're somebody who can go out there and whip some ass but you're not actually in there you know sparring and training to whip ass in the situation where you might get your nose broken and then you know shooting has to get set back six weeks you're not going to do that so no she's not doing any of that she's not been training and the last time we did see her she got absolutely demolished by cyborg santos now cyborg justino again but that's the thing I, and i'm glad i brought up this point that she in explaining how she would only go up and wait to fight gina carano you just torpedoed your best argument for why you wouldn't fight Cyborg. Like, now it makes it 100% look like you're ducking Cyborg, right? Because you, it's not the weight that you're worried about. It's not that, hey, like, hey, I'm a 135-pound champ. I fight at 135 pounds. Everybody else shut the hell up. I'm not doing anything else other than that. Because that's a reasonable position to stick to. We've said that before when people start pressuring guys to do super fight stuff like you know anderson silva and gsp hey we have weight classes for a reason if you want to stay in your weight class and dominate that weight class i don't think anybody ought to be able to say shit to you about it but if you're like well i would go up for this one fight that would be super easy and a huge payday for me but nothing else well what do you think we're going to conclude from that right and the thing that drives me crazy is again people's difference in perspective like when it comes to fighters they like and fighters they don't Ronda Rousey says this, everybody, oh, okay, whatever. You know, John Jones says, hey, why don't those two dudes fight each other and then I'll fight the winner? And everybody just lambasts the dude as a coward. Just an inveterate coward, Jad Dundas. The greatest fighter of his generation is ducking these two contenders. Uh, yeah, the, and the, here's the thing that I think is interesting about it is that it's yet another fight uh, that brings up this weird dichotomy in our sport uh, of – is this a sport or is it an entertainment thing that is designed to make the people who sell it to us money? Right. Because right. like you can't really justify this from a competitive standpoint and preserve the, uh, the illusion that the reason that we're having all of these fights is to find out who the best person is. Absolutely. Not. Right. Uh, but you can justify it in the way that if you're Ronda Rousey and, or the UFC, it makes sense to you because you think you're going to be able to make a lot of money off of it, especially if you're Ronda Rousey, who has been totally honest about her uh, plans to go make some movies for the summer and then come back. And, and as I saw reported this last week, go directly from the red carpet 
it to a fight or go directly from a fight to the red carpet. I can't remember which way it went, but like if that's your mentality, then goddamn, of course you want to fight Gina Carano for that fight because that's the fight that you can do that for. Like you, you go go ahead, give seventy percent, right? Still come in and beat the crap out of Gina Carano and don't have a mark on you when you show up for the Fast and the Furious fifteen pr- uh, premiere, right? No, it's a it's a good deal for everybody except for fans who at least theoretically care about like competitive matchups right and the deal for gina carano too because hey you'll roll in here uh she'll arm bar you you'll tap immediately uh you'll get your check and you'll go home right and that the weirdest thing to me is that as mma fans we know that and that we seem okay with it like right. anytime one of these bizarre matchups is floated out there in public a bunch of people will go crazy about how how uh, ridiculous it is and how it doesn't make any sense and then you'll get the second wave of people who always come in and are like well it's some fight game and that's how it is we smart have to, business yeah but smart right. business and it's like what? It's not your business. It's you not, are not in that business. It's not your business indeed. Especially when you know the money that the UFC is talking about making. That's yours. It's your money. That's just a, a diabolical plan to get your money from you. And you are acknowledging that it is not a competitive thing, but that it's smart of them to get your money from you this way. I don't get that. I mean, yeah, and if it wouldn't work if you wouldn't support it. If you would be like, no, I recognize that that is uh, a bullshit matchup. I'll watch the GIF on Sunday morning and I'll keep my money in my pocket. Uh, that would be all you'd have to do and then they would stop doing stuff like this. But I mean, again, the, the argument that uh, the other argument Ronda Rousey tried to make, hey, well, she's uh, Ronda, uh, Gina Carano was this great pioneer, be a huge historical fight, you know, and maybe in some kind of vague sense it would be you know it would be a huge historical fight though is to beat the person who beat that pioneer and beat the shit out of her right i think you're if you're ronda rousey or the ufc your best argument against going up to 145 pounds for cyborg is that you know she she's a steroid cheat we don't owe her anything like we're not going to do her a favor by going up to 145 she has if we're going to fight her at all she's going to have to come down to 135 which she said she'll do yeah you still don't want it right so we'll we'll, we'll see what happens with that anyway uh that is going to do it for listener mail if you have a question a comment a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks you know how to do that you can go to our website comainevent.com click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast podcast and that will get you in touch with us as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, uh, Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler uh, had a crackerjack of a welterweight title fight on Saturday at UFC 171, uh, and the ultimate result was the one I think most of us thought was going to happen, that, that Johnny Hendricks walked away as the new undisputed UFC 170-pound champion. Uh, there's been a little bit of controversy over the scoring, I guess, even though from where I was sitting, I thought it was a pretty easy fight to score. I thought that Johnny Hendricks won the first two rounds, Robbie Lawler won the second two rounds, and then uh, after winning the first couple of minutes of the fifth round, Robbie Lawler just kind of shut down. Down and allowed Johnny Hendricks to sort of steal the title from him in a lot of ways uh, with some some punching combinations and ultimately a takedown that that caused Robbie Lawler to look up at the clock and in his brain think, oh, man, probably, <laughs> I assume, in a Johnny Hendricks voice. Yeah. Uh, is that how you scored it? Is that how you saw things shaking out here? I did. I th- mean, I think the, the controversy uh, in scoring was the type that you mentioned where when people actually saw uh, Doug Crosby's scorecard uh, that I think... Uh, he scored one of the early rounds, uh, uh, a 10-8 for Johnny Hendricks and scored the last one, a, a 10-10. Uh, people were just wondering, okay, you got the right answer, but once we made you show your work, we realized maybe you didn't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, but, that was legitimately weird. But, uh, you know, you're right. Got the, got the right result in the end. And I, and I did think that it was fairly easy to score. Um, but, and in the good way that where I don't think anybody can really complain on either side of the fight, because I think 
if you don't, if you're sitting in there, there in the corner after that fourth round and you don't tell yourself, hey, win this round, win the fight, um, then, you know, you're you're lying to yourself or somebody in your corner is lying to you. It's pretty obvious like that was going to be the deciding one was the, the how you go out there in the fifth round. Um, and I, I don't think I see how you could say that Johnny Hendricks didn't win that fifth round. So I, I think that that does make sense. I mean, I do think, however, though, that there are moments in there that are going to haunt Robbie Lawler yeah. because it seemed like he had the best opportunity to finish. You know, that third round, he had Johnny Hendricks hurt and it seemed like maybe he was laying off a little bit thinking, I don't want to punch myself out. I don't want to run in here and get caught. Uh, and I think that that's, that's going to keep you up some nights. Yeah, well, let's talk about Robbie Lawler's approach in this fight because I think it it, it brings up uh, Johnny Hendricks' game plan, which which I thought uh, ultimately won him the fight. Now, from Robbie Lawler's point of view, he walks into the cage with this just like serene grin on his face uh, while while we're going through the introductions, and it and it very much seemed like uh, he was totally confident that the 13 years he had spent in his career previous to this was about to pay off in in terms of a of a UFC title. But then he goes out in the fight, and it's kind of like it took him. 10 minutes or so to kind of get going uh and even when he did get going his his uh he seemed content to box and not do a, a ton of a lot else did a great job stuffing johnny hendrix's takedown attempts but in terms of his offensive output uh it was kind of punching and nothing else except for a few uh rare occasions where he threw a couple knees and then eventually some leg kicks but when we started out uh it was a pretty one-dimensional attack from law from uh robbie lawler which i thought was in stark contrast to what Johnny Hendricks did, he came out and I thought looked pretty great on his feet, especially considering, you know, that, that he's known primarily as a really, really good wrestler who's not afraid to throw them bungalows. Like he came out and, and had what I thought was a, a, a really good striking attack in that, uh, he seemed pretty fluid and, and, uh, I don't know if you want to say technical, but at least nuanced in his striking attack. Right. Well, he, and he, he was, uh, like taking, I think, good advantage of Robbie Lawler's strategy, like you said, to kind of stand there in a certain range, cover up, try and uh, try and block or, or, or roll there and fire back. And Johnny Hendricks was doing a pretty good job of, of you know, hitting him as long as he's going to be standing still there and then getting out of the way when you're done. So that because that seemed like how Robbie Lawler had seized that he was going to win this fight. Right. So I'm going to sit there. I'm going to let this guy think that he can uh, open up and unload and then I'm going to fire back. And it's going to be a Melvin Manhoff kind of situation where uh, one big punch is going to catch him and, and put him on the defensive. And that almost worked. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very close fight. I don't think we should. uh uh, take anything away from Robbie Lawler. He came really, really close to becoming the UFC welterweight champion. And like you said at the, at the beginning, like if it seemed like he was able to show a little bit more urgency there in the third round, he might have finished Johnny Hendricks and, and, and won the fight. But at the same time, seemed like he was oper uh, uh, operating under a more measured approach. And, and like you said, didn't want to punch himself out, uh, but was able to kind of uh, play to his own strengths and, and do what he did and, and almost win the fight. I think uh, you talked about this a minute ago, but we do have to give some credit, I think, to Mark Lehman uh, in the corner of Johnny Hendricks for uh, not shining his man on, as we've right. seen from from guys in the past. Tell him to get that uh, Johnny vision on. Yeah, he told him to get the Johnny vision on and was certainly right up in his face uh, before the fifth and decisive round, letting him know, like, hey, man, you need to go out and get this thing done if you want to win the, the UFC title, uh, which I thought was probably exactly what needed to happen well, at that and point. It makes you wonder if somebody had said that to him, uh, you know, or if he had fought like that uh, in the fifth round of the GSP fight. And maybe they did say, now that I'm thinking about it, they did say something along the lines of, you know, go out there and win this this round and, and, and win the fight. And with that one, he treated the fifth round like something you just got to get through. This one, he treated it like, okay, this one is for all the marbles. And he won it and with it won the fight. And I wonder, can it, can anybody get Johnny Vision on? Do you have to be named Johnny? Yeah. Like, I, is it Chad I, I don't Vision think if you do I it? could opt for Johnny Vision. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I just, I don't think that would work for me. I don't think it'd be a good look for starters. <laughs> uh, did, did did anyone ever figure out what Mark Lehman was saying in between that previous round where he like started uh, tapping the UFC mic so that we couldn't hear him? Remember when that happened? Yeah, Remember I expected when... that to be way more of a uh, conspiracy theory uh, thing than it ended up becoming. Maybe we all forgot about it when he lost his damn mind yes. after, when the yes. fight was announced and he's the one that can be heard in the background shouting, holy fuck! And then yeah. he goes and hugs Joe Rogan and Dana White. If you, if you like a good time, <laughs> you should not miss out on the opportunity to watch... 
Uh, again, the post-fight reaction of Johnny Henderson, his corner, which the UFC was kind enough to put on YouTube for us as one of their official videos. Uh, you want to see some dudes falling out like they're at Def Comedy Jam circa 1997. Go watch Mark Lehman and, and Johnny Hendricks react to this win. Uh, uh, Mark Lehman just storms across the cage and picks Dana White. Well, uh, 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 Dana White that appeared to be not that into it, by the way, uh, like... <laughs> Picks He's got him a up, suit on, and, yeah, Mark Lehman and a huge on him. bear hug, and Dana White's wearing his five thousand dollars suit that he's probably concerned is going to get Johnny Vision all over. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, we're going to take away from this is a awesome fight, and I, I as I kind of pointed out in my column, and that I don't think uh, we should gloss over. Uh, the best welterweight title fight in years. Right. And it happens right after the best welterweight in MMA history is kind of out of the picture. Because right. um, it's just not the kind of fights that he would put on, especially when he had, you know, when he was a champion and had way more to lose in the game and was kind of playing it safe and a little more strategery uh, involved in his fights. And then you get these two hungry guys going after the vacant title. Couple of hitters. Couple <laughs> these hitters, man, getting in here, uh, you know, putting down these ass whippings to their maximum effect. And the the result is this awesome, awesome fight. The thing, though, that I think is a, a valid thing to, to wonder about now is how quickly we're all like, okay, who's next? Who, who, who can we get to throw in there against Johnny Hendricks? He's a champ now. He still doesn't yet feel like the guy, though, does he? Um... You know, you know, I mean, he feels like more of the guy than I think if than if Robbie Lawler would have would have eked out a decision because at that point I think we would all be more apt to be like, ah, well, he's a champ, but like uh, George St. Pierre never lost; he's still the number one guy in yeah. the world because a lot of people thought Johnny Hendricks beat George St. Pierre at UFC 167. I think we're more uh, uh, likely to kind of accept him now as the new standard bearer at 170, uh, even though uh, I still think it would be a hell of a fight if George St. Pierre decided to come back and, and fight jo uh, Johnny Hendricks a second time. Um, I, I guess we'll probably talk about that more in round number two, as I'm sure we will uh, the, the wide open nature of the division that you pointed out. And I thought you made a good point that I think one of the reasons uh, that this fight seemed so uh, amazing to us, and, and it would have been an awesome fight regardless of the stakes or regardless of, uh, of uh, the, the, the implications, but like, yeah, you, as you said, like the exact opposite of what we had seen in welterweight title fights over and over again for the last, uh, you know, five or six years. So in that regard, uh, it, it was notable, uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, do you want to do, are you fucking kidding me for this yes. round? Or, yeah. All right, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Now, Ben, this is going to be a history making. Are you fucking kidding me? Yes, if I'm is. not mistaken, because, uh, for the first time ever, are, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, concerns two guys, one fight. That's right. From UFC 171. What 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 do you have to say this week? What's your what's your are you fucking well, kidding me? The one fight we're going to talk about here in this are you fucking kidding me is the Diego Sanchez versus Miles Jury and I think you know where I'm going with this everybody. Diego Sanchez came out after his decision loss to say that a big part of his problem was that he had gotten sick from eating steak tartare with a raw quail egg which he ate after the weigh-ins before the fight. Are you fucking kidding me? You thought it was a good idea to eat raw beef before a fight? And then you're going to come out with that as if that explains the entire law. You know what? Okay, I'm not even going to be mad about the excuse thing. Because MMA fighters, they got some crazy excuses. You kind of have to. The crazier the fighter, the crazier the excuse can be. Just look at Rampage and his litany of excuses throughout his entire career. That's kind of part of the sport. What I'm going to direct the are you fucking kidding me about is your your culinary decisions, Diego Sanchez. Raw beef before a fight? Chad, are you fucking kidding me with this? Ben, I wouldn't even eat steak tartare and a raw quail's egg before we were going to uh, record the podcast. Like, yeah. That's how worried I would be about, about how it would affect me. If I was going to go for a walk later of any kind of distance, a mile or, or more like I got walk. a job interview on Wednesday, <laughs> like I'm not going to eat steak tartare tonight and just in case I'm still feeling weird. Fucking kidding me. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, not to be cocky, but 
I'm surprised how easy it's going to be to best you in the are you fucking kidding me department this week. No, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Miles Jury, after you just beat Diego Sanchez at UFC 171, you're going to stand in the cage and start your post-fight interview by saying, not to be cocky, but because you know whatever you say after that is going to make you look like the biggest asshole ever. (laughs) And hey, man, if you're in the cage and you, you honestly think that you're surprised at how easily you just beat Diego Sanchez. Keep that shit to yourself, man. Say almost anything else. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Not to be cocky, but I think mine was better than yours. Not to be cocky, but I'm, I think you're mistaken. <laughs> anyway, not to be cocky, but that's it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, after UFC 171, the welterweight division is clearer in at least one sense. We know who the champion is. It's Johnny Hendricks. Below that, chaos. Just chaos and, and, and instability. Uh, it, it's, it's like the Ukraine over there in the, in the welterweight division right now. Once you get below the champ, no one knows what's going on or what's going to happen. Wait a second. Was that a Nikita Krylov burn that you just dropped? Wait, you're saying I'm I'm burning Nikita Krylov now? Well, I think he just made light of the situation in the Ukraine, which I'm sure was on his mind when he went out and got choked out Von Flu style. Now, by- see, there there's an excuse. There's a valid yes, excuse somebody that- could use. Nikita Krylov, there was the big referendum uh, going on in the Crimea uh, this weekend. He could have came out and said, you know what, you guys, I had a lot on my mind, so that's why I wasn't thinking that I should let go of the guillotine when a guy gets inside control. Otherwise, I will get Von Flu choked. Next thing you know, I'm sleeping on the mat, uh, waking up wondering if they had the vote yet or not. There's an excuse. That is a pretty good excuse, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. The, uh, the welterweight division appears to a little bit be in chaos now, even though we, we have the, the, uh, definitive result that Johnny Harvey Hendricks was able to beat Robert Glenn Lawler, uh, for the welterweight title. But, uh, you had kind of a bummer of an outcome in the Tyron Woodley, Carlos Condit fight where, uh, seemed like Carlos Condit probably blew his knee out during a takedown attempt early, or he got taken down early in the second round by Tyron Woodley and, and it looked like suffered some damage to his knee and then moments later, uh, kind of landed awkwardly after Woodley threw a low kick at him and kicked uh, in the other leg. Yeah, got kind of in the turned him around leg. on that knee and it just exploded. So, you know, that, that, that's a legitimate win for Tyron Woodley, but at the same time, it's probably one that we're all going to look at and be like, eh, could have been more impressive. Yeah, it could have been, but not his fault. Right. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think that the, the only issue I would take with Tyron Woodley right now is he seems to be really trying hard to take full credit, uh, for the knee injury, which, I think you want to come down somewhere in the middle there. The knee injury was not your fault. You wanted to have a more definitive ending to that fight. This other guy blew his knee out. Nothing you can do about that. But, you know, when you try to compare injuring a guy's knee on a takedown attempt to injuring a guy's arm on an arm bar, we're all going to see the differences pretty easily. For one thing, an arm bar, the point of it is to injure the other guy's arm or to make him quit before his arm is injured. A takedown, the object is to get him down on the ground. Like, you know nobody is shooting for a takedown thinking, oh, I'm going to fuck up his knee now. Here we go, double leg. That, <laughs> that doesn't happen. And so then when you try and, like, jump up and say, like, yeah, I did that, it's kind of the same thing like Chris Weidman uh, – it's even worse, actually, than Chris Weidman taking credit for breaking Anderson Silva's shin in half with his leg check, you know? Yeah, so as a result, we have kind of a wide open 170 pounds. You know, Hector Lombard, as we said, beat Jake Shields earlier in the night, but at the same time, I guess it didn't look quite as uh, uh, overpowering as a lot of people wanted him to look. And it did seem like he slowed down there in the in the final two rounds. You so, loved it, though. That's your guy. Uh, that's your guy, Hector Lombard. I, he's just terrifying, man. Plus, it's hard to find a guy in the sport who looks better getting off the bus. 
uh, than, than Hector Lombard. Uh, but now we have this situation where we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, people have been quick to, to, uh, promote, uh, Rory McDonald as the next title contender. Uh, we had that one, uh, retired guy whose name eludes me at the moment show up French uh, and start right? yelling stuff at the way. <laughs> oh, oh, that guy. Uh, with, uh, I guess a UFC camera crew there with him, the boom mic operator standing nearby, uh, that you can see from a certain angle. That, that retired uh, guy sure makes it to a lot of UFC events, doesn't well, he? I mean, when they get him a seat, finally. <laughs> so, uh, you know, fighting all these hitters. He's been, he's, uh, gotten his name thrown into the hat as a potential first, uh, challenger for Johnny Hendricks, which again would be yet another fight <laughs> that undermines the idea that what we're doing here is trying to find out who the best guy is. Okay. Uh, let's, let's talk about the Nick Diaz thing. Okay. Uh, because like you said, Nick Diaz, it doesn't really make sense that a guy on a two-fight losing streak who is nominally retired shows back up, yells at a guy during the weigh-ins, uh, you know, gives some interviews backstage, and then boom, he's fighting for a title. I mean, that that doesn't seem to make sense. How much of it do you think is people like, hey, we just love Nick Diaz. He's fun to have around. Throw that guy in there. At least he'll give you a show one way or another. And how much is it, it like somewhat justifiable for people to say, well, we think he should have won the fight with Carlos Condit. We think he deserved that decision. And then, yeah, GSP decisioned him, but he just fucking held him down, man. Whatever. Uh, I mean, is there any basis to being able to look back at those two losses and be like, it's not like he got ran over by anybody. Maybe we can justify it. No, uh, <laughs> because he did get run over by George St. Pierre. And then, you know, the Carlos Condit fight, uh, was one of the best examples of octagon control I've ever seen in, in a, in a five round fight. Just, I, I know you're a sucker for octagon control. Just led the guy around the cage like he had him on a leash in that fight. Uh, fantastic fight for Carlos Condit. But no, to answer your, your specific question, uh, no, the only way I think you can, you can prop up Nick Diaz as a title contender here is, like you said, if you are an enormous Nick Diaz supporter, uh, or I guess if you come at this from more of a, from a boxing background where I think, uh, it seems more, uh, uh, it happens more often that 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 guys who maybe don't seem to deserve it competitively get get put into a title fight because uh, that world is a little bit more fractured. And I think you're always trying to make the the most bankable fight that you can make. I would argue that in mixed martial arts, since we have this strong centralized power in the UFC, uh, one of the great things about the sport is that we've never had to resort to that kind of matchmaking before. Uh, typically, we can feel secure in the notion that uh, that we're going to have the the best uh, the best contender uh f fight for the title um and and at this point uh you know if you're not going to get george st p george st pierre back right away which which uh judging by his appearance on the mma hour today doesn't seem like we are uh it does kind of seem like maybe tyron woodley is your guy i don't, I don't know what, what do you think i think tyron woodley can be the guy i think uh that's an interesting fight uh especially you know the, the both of their wrestling backgrounds and and you look at his his skill set, and you think that there's a guy who presents something that would be something new for Johnny Hendricks to have to deal with, you know, uh, uh, another wrestler who can throw that that overhand right bungalow, and uh, you know, who knows what happens there. I think that that's a fun fight. I think in the meantime, if hey, if Nick Diaz wants to come back and he wants to get serious and get in this picture, I like uh, you know Danny Downs' suggestion: throw Nick Diaz in there for a rematch with Robbie Lawler, uh, and. Let the chips fall where they may on that one. Worst case scenario, Robbie Lawler gets back into a title fight, and I don't think after the performance he put on against Johnny Hendricks, anybody would be terribly disappointed at seeing that. Or, you know, maybe Nick Diaz uh, goes out there and knocks him out again, and uh, then you can actually have, like, some sort of legitimate claim for why Nick Diaz deserves to fight for a title. I mean, I think that that competitively is the thing that makes the most sense. Those Diaz's though, they are mesmerizing. They are, you know, aren't they? They, there really is something about them. When they start, when they start talking, you just can't look away. It's, is, it, uh, is it how real they keep it? I think it might be the how real they keep it. Or is it how few fucks they give? It might be a, a combination of both, since we've seldom seen someone who gives as few of fucks while at the same time keeping it so real. So it's, 
It's hard to look away. Uh, we would be remiss, I think, if we didn't spend a little time talking about George St. Pierre uh, before we wrap up this round. Uh, you know, I think the guy that we all want to see fight Johnny Hendricks at some point, or at least the guy who who seems like the most compelling matchup for the new champion because of their totally close and controversial fight at UFC 167. Uh, he went on went on the uh, the fortnight today uh, with with Ariel Helwani. Uh, and professed to, that he's never been happier right now, uh, that, that, uh, he doesn't feel stressed because he doesn't have a big fight coming up. He, he seemed tickled that, uh, he was able to watch UFC 171 in the company of personal hero Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we got Johnny Hendricks and George St. Pierre on the phone together for a few seconds where they had some, some cordial, uh, discussions. They congratulated each other and, and reiterated that they do want to fight at some point, but, in case you missed it the first time he said it, George St. Pierre did want to make sure that we all know that he's not coming back unless the sport makes some serious alterations to how it conducts its drug testing uh, in the future, which frankly is in stark contrast to what we heard when he first walked away from the sport when we were led to believe that it it had everything to do with these kind of unspecified and very vague personal issues uh and, and it seems now that that probably did have something to do with it but you hear the guy talk now and it sure as hell sounds like the main thing keeping him out of the cage uh at least today is the fact that he doesn't necessarily trust the system of drug testing that we have in MMA today yeah he and he does seem you know, genuinely concerned about that. It doesn't seem like something that he is just latching onto as, you know, an excuse to be left alone so he can party in clubs with the shirt off. Uh, he does seem like he really cares about that. And I, I don't know if you can disagree with any of the guy's points about that. Like he says, you know, if you are, are getting caught with a drug test where you know what they'll test you for and you know when they'll test you, it's only because you don't have your shit together, man. Uh, if you do have your shit together and have people who know how to, how to cheat and how to, to use performance enhancing drugs, there's no reason you should ever be caught with the system that MMA currently uses. Uh, I mean, what I wonder is if you say something like, well, if I come back, it would have to be when the UFC changes its policies on drug testing. What I hear is, so never, never coming back then. Yeah, and, and the, the, the thing that surprises me about it is like kind of how serious he seems. Cause I, I had been in the back of my mind kind of postulating like, well, you know, George St. Pierre walks away last November. He's had three or four months now to kind of rest up and think about it. I wonder if it's going to be hard for him to, uh, see this other guy win his belt and then be walking around as the champion because you would think a guy who has been uh you know such a staunch competitor like george st pierre you would think that that would irk him a little bit deep down needle him a little bit but uh you know he didn't give that impression at all when he was on ariel's show today he seems to be pretty content with where he's at right now and continues to to uh repeat that he's not going to come back unless they get some kind of independent olympic style drug testing uh if for if for nothing else then just for his fights with which, uh, you know, I felt like even though we've heard him say that before, brought a lot of clarity to the situation today and uh, uh, kind of made me re realize, uh, you know, maybe not for the first time, but definitely how serious he was about about uh, uh, this being an issue for him. Well, you know, and I mean, I'm glad to see him pushing that issue and to see him continuing to push it rather than just, you know, saying, hey, this is why I walked away. Uh, and then, you know, letting it lie, letting the UFC say, oh, we don't know what he's talking about there and, and forget it. Uh, I'm glad to see, you know, him continuing to make these points. I think he's a good person to do it. Uh, and that it should be something that, has the potential to make the UFC at least consider doing something like that in order to get him back. Because at least if for no other reason for all the money you could make, if you got George St. Pierre to come back, you know, in a year's time or something and fight Johnny Hendricks. And if you have to say, okay, we'll do this VADA testing, then maybe that's the thing that, that opens the door to you doing that on a, on a broader level is recognizing, okay, we, we do need better testing in this sport. We do need some kind of independent agency to come in. If you start doing it and the USC actually gets behind it for one fight, then there's a greater chance that it'll get behind it just in general. So, I mean, I do think something like this and, and a guy like George St. Pierre has the potential to, to force that kind of change. Um, or it could just be one of those things where he says it for a while uh, and then eventually decides, okay, well, screw it. I'll come back, do one more at least anyway. 
didn't get what I wanted so well. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens once the once they start throwing big figures around uh, in front of everybody's face. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's uh, he's the right guy to say it, and I hope that uh, he is able to affect some change. Um, but you know, that's probably going to do it for round number two. Uh, we will be right back for round number three. All right, Ben, it's the testosterone replacement swan song, as we are led to believe that this weekend's Shogun Hua versus Dan Henderson 2 fight will be the last one uh, fought inside the octagon where one guy has legally been allowed uh, to ingest synthetic testosterone, that being Dan Henderson. Um, I guess we're, we're told that the... Uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission's ban that resulted in in the UFC saying they weren't going to let guys uh, do TRT anymore happened too late for Dan Henderson to to um for lack of a better term cycle off. That's what we're saying, right? Uh, let's just let's just put it out there before this fight starts. So they're going to go ahead and let him do it for this one, and after that, cold turkey, my friend. Uh, I know that you've never minced words or had a lack of word lack of things to say about testosterone replacement therapy do you want one last chance to uh to whip the mule here not really i mean it, it does feel weird when you think about it in terms of like okay this thing is illegal but this guy was kind of grandfathered in and we don't really have time so he can go on and go ahead and do this thing that's illegal I mean, that's a, that's a weird way to think about it, right? But at the same time, it feels like a lot of people are just being like, ah, well, this fight doesn't really matter, like, in any strict sense for the division. It's just they had a fun fight the first time. We're hoping maybe it'll be half as fun the second time around. And shit, man, it's in Brazil, so screw it. You know? Yeah, that does- Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> oh, that would be a good tagline for this one. <laughs> UFC be Fight Night 38. Smoke them if you got them. Uh... <laughs> It does seem weird that it almost makes it almost feels like people are saying, well, this one doesn't really count. Right. Like it's uh, they might as well do whatever, because it's not like we're going to have any enormous ramifications from this fight. Uh, for those of you out who are trying to make your uh, desk calendar out this week, you're uh, you're, uh, you know, trying to plan out your weekend. Day. Yeah. yeah, we should we should point out uh, uh, this fight not on Saturday. It's on Sunday this week. If you are uh, on our side of the globe. Um which, why do they do that? Any idea? Brazil? I don't know. That's just my, my go-to answer here. Brazil? Just say, it's what Globo wanted? Yeah. Globo, Globo was like, hey, we want this fight at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday. And he was like, we're powerless. You're Globo. <laughs> uh, well, you know, so while we're on the topic of TRT, before we transition to, uh, talk of almost anything else, um, Dana White this week made the, the assertion that the media got what it wanted, uh, when, when they had to pull Vitor Belfort out of his championship opportunity against Chris Weidman at an upcoming event. And, you know, when he says that, I assume he's talking directly to you. Uh, so do you have a, did, what did you make of that? What was your response there? You know, it's stuff like this. It's getting to the point where there's just so little Dana White could say that would surprise me, I, especially. Okay, one of his claims, right, was that he never flip-flopped on TRT, even though he had said at one point that it's great, it's legal, and it's fair, um, and then had decided that, no, he was against it, and then he was so against it that he hopes Vitor doesn't get an exemption after saying that there's no reason Vitor can't fight in Las Vegas. Um, and so then when they do strike the, the ban through TRT, uh, he can claim that it was what he wanted all along, which... Not at all true. He had he had only recently started saying that he wanted TRT to go away. Uh, before that, perfectly legal and fair, and and, and following the rules. And you and you know, then it became oh, I'm against the guys who abuse it, and then I'm totally against it. So he's obviously wrong about that stuff. When we and we have the internet, we can all go back and find those quotes where he has said different things about TRT. His position has changed, and now. Uh, after saying, you know, hey, how glad he was to see TRT gone. Now it's it's us in the media who got Vitor Belfort pulled from that fight. I, I don't understand how that could be our victory when it seems like what else was were they supposed to do there? Like it doesn't seem like there's enough time for him to get off of TRT. But hey, if you think there is, 
Leave him in that fight and let's find out. Let's, you know, if you think that, that, like nobody was saying Vitor Belfort, uh, necessarily had to be pulled from that fight. I think they were saying that Vitor Belfort could not be on TRT during that fight. Uh, those seem like two different things. I don't see why you couldn't leave him in that fight if that's what you think, if you think it's reasonable for him to get off the, the juice in time and still be ready to fight. Seems like you didn't think that. And that's why you made that decision. And then that's why you also uh, issued a statement on his behalf saying how he had withdrawn from it, which then he then publicly distanced himself from. Yeah, this specific one seemed like kind of the uh, 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 classic UFC justification uh, or like the classic UFC take on something that we would end a like two or three year long conversation where a lot of people made fairly articulate uh, arguments against what we saw is as kind of like broad based cheating, um, all of which were done for the good of the sport and all of which were done to kind of like try to clean up the, uh, you know, try to clean up various fights and, and, and to prevent guys from using this legal loophole to, to use what we all thought was a performance enhancer. And then to have a guy come out and just be like, well, the media didn't want Vitor in this fight. Just like, that's not exactly what we'd been talking about. No, and I don't remember people saying, like, Vitor's got to be pulled from that fight. I mean, I think that there are people who are justifiably, like, wondering, well, hey, if we're saying now that this is not cool, what does that do to this great year Vitor Belfort had when he was doing the thing that was not cool and doing it in one of the only places that it seemed would let him do the thing that was not cool, uh, which, of course, the UFC was not purposely putting him there so that he could do the not cool thing. That was all Globo's call, man. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that doesn't quite add up. And then to, like you said, just kind of oversimplify it by being like, Hey, this was a media witch hunt and poor Vitor is the victim, man, that that's not going to fly. And it's, you know, I, I do think that there's like guys like Dan Henderson and Vitor and Chael Sonnen now, like you do have to kind of feel bad for them because the UFC was on their side with this stuff until it decided it wasn't. And now, Hey guys, figure it out. your fucking selves. You know, whatever is going to happen to your body when you have to go off this stuff, whatever's going to be, uh, the state of your career. Once you do that, that's on you. You figure it out. I mean, we were, we were with there, with, with you there. We were, you know, recommending doctors and stuff for you then. Uh, but now, Hey man, it doesn't seem like it's cool anymore. So, you guys figure it out. I mean, that, that does make you feel bad for them, some of those guys, because it's like the, the sands just shifted under their feet. All right. Well, as for this specific fight, uh, Dan Henderson against Shogun Hua, the first time we saw these guys fight back at UFC 139, November 19th, 2011. I scored it as awesome. And you I did. think we were not alone in thinking, uh, it was one of the best fights that anyone there had seen live. Maybe one of the best fights in UFC history. Obviously a ton of water under the bridge since then. Uh, you know, not only about TRT, but just basic win loss records and, and guys getting older, et cetera, et cetera. Does this rematch for you, uh, uh, stoke any excitement just in, in terms of thinking that maybe we would get a replay of the thing we saw the first time that was so awesome. You know, I'm, I'm actively trying to keep my expectations in check. I'm trying to not think about it in terms of that first fight because one of the things I think that made that fight, uh, so unexpectedly awesome was that it seemed like, well, this is probably going to be a short one. Uh, and if it is a long one, then that's probably not going to be for the better. I mean, I remember sitting there on press row that night, uh, in San Jose, I believe it was. And the way they were just going at each other in the first round, I think I even made the classic blunder of turning to, uh, Brett Akimoto, who's sitting next to me and saying, well, this one's not going the distance. Uh, and then of course, five round battle royale at the end of it. I mean, I, I think that, that the worst thing you can do for a fight like, like this rematch is to just be like, okay, here we go, round six, and expect them to do the same things all over again. Because as we've seen, they're kind of different people than they were at the, at the first one. And sometimes those are just magical nights where everything comes together and you don't, you don't want to go into it thinking that it has to be the same thing all over again. I think let's, let's let it be what it's going to be. I feel like that's pretty sporting of you to not heap the such expectations on Dan Henderson and Shogun Hua here. Uh, it, I, I feel kind of similarly. I feel like this one really snuck up on me, frankly, just because it's a part of this, uh, this block where we're going to go ahead and do a, a show every week or every other week before, uh, before we, we get to the, uh, John Jones Glover Tashira fight. Well, you look at the rest of this card and it's understandable why maybe this one wasn't circled on your calendar. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty excited for the Leonardo Santos Norman Park 
fight or, or the, uh, Caesar Ferreira versus the Duke Clarence Byron Dalloway. Uh, that's not true. I'm not excited for either of those fights, but, uh, just decided to pick them at random. What about the guy who owns the, the pizza card. joint? Is he on here? Uh, Zephyrinos? Oh, um, I, yeah. See if he'll bring some breadsticks by. Yeah, maybe he will. Maybe he'll bring us, uh, some hot breadsticks to our table right before he fights. Uh, that would be a pretty good gimmick, actually, if you brought, <laughs> brought breadsticks We've out seen for people gimmicks, as you yes. walk to the cage. All right. Well, let's do, uh, just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I don't know where you were on, uh, Friday night. Uh, if you were at home, perhaps in front of the TV, uh, perhaps, uh, Turning on uh, Axis TV Friday night, say around eight ish or so. No, I, I don't remember where I was. I was not doing that, although I do do that on occasion of a Friday night, uh, since the fights over there are free on uh, on Access. Well, my friend, if you sounds like you missed uh, something, I'm gonna say memorable in Hip Show. Yeah, I, saw, I read about it on Twitter. Hip Show, man, it's this thing where. Uh, MMA fighters in headgear and gloves are running around, jumping over boxes and swinging on ropes and playing some kind of team game, uh, by rules, which are a mystery to me, mostly because I refuse to learn them. I'm just saying, I watched about 15 minutes of hip show, uh, about 12 of which was spent saying, what the fuck am I watching out loud over and over again? Then, I switched over and uh, caught the end of Bellator, caught the uh, Pat Kerr and Daniel Strauss fight, which was an awesome fight with a, a great ending. However, after I watched Hip Show, all I'm thinking is, man, why isn't there a rope for these guys to swing on? And nobody's going to jump over a box, and when are their teammates going to get in here and get in the action? Just saying. So you've been spoiled is what you're saying. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, this Hip week, uh, I'm just saying, we, we heard a lot of this after UFC 167 when George St. Pierre walked away with a razor close decision over Johnny Hendricks. We heard the same argument repeated again this week after, uh, Johnny Hendricks walked away with a pretty close decision over Robbie Lawler. And that argument in a nutshell is, well, look how beat up that one guy's face is. I'm just saying, dudes, can we stop with that? Can we stop? trying to base arguments about who won a fight over how beat up one guy's face is like that. That's not what we're doing here. That's, that's, that's not what this is about. That's maybe how you can tell who wins a fight down at the local tavern. But over here, we've got rules and expectations and a lot of other things at play. So let's just stop basing what we think over how beat up one guy's face is. Just I'm just saying, saying. just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you who won this Shogun uh, Dan Henderson Sunday nighter. Uh, boy, do you think we're going to have enough time to to get our thoughts together? No way. Uh, we have, we've got no chance. Yeah. Uh, but as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, for the record, I want it noted that after the Lawler-Hendricks fight, I was the one running around saying Johnny Hendricks clearly won because look how beat up Robbie Lawler's shin was. Well, it's almost big like, ass welt, man. Maybe they should put like that blue dot over guys' faces, like from the uh, 